I'm Gary David. I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. I have to say that I am really excited for today's guest. Not that I'm not excited about our previous guest, but this guest I was pretty excited about because Jack Whalen is a person that I have for a long time looked up to in terms of his work and his ability to translate sociology to design audiences. Growing up as a wee lad graduate student, studying the area of ethnomethodology and workplace studies, I always looked to Jack's work as a case study in what I wanted to do with my professional career and how to model my work to have an impact. You know, from his earliest days at the University of Oregon to his move outside of academia to the Institute for Research on Learning at Stanford, and then his shift to the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, where the Ethernet was created. I don't think Jack created it, but it was created there and I saw where it was created and that was pretty darn cool. That's cool. And, and yeah, it was really neat. And even today with the Sustainable Fisheries Partnership, for a really long time now, Jack has used ethnography and more specifically workplace studies to further design work and to have impact through sociology. Mm. Yeah. In, in today's episode, we are talking about how Jack arrived at this work from his dissertation on social movements. So it's cool. We go all the way back to the beginning and what like first sparked his interest in studying human society. Then we then work through his work as a 911 responder, which is super interesting, how he was trained, the research that he did, which then led into his work with his wife, Marilyn, on call center operations. And we track all the way through how methodology is really the first human-centered design. That's right. We said it here first. Ethnomethodology is really the first human-centered design. That's right. Jack, print it. Print it. <laughs> trademark. <laughs> hashtag. Uh, and Jack also talks with us about how being a social broker to bring stakeholders together is an important element in workplace studies. And how do we turn findings into design outcomes? Again, thinking about this, right, we're, we're going to dig into this idea. You know, ethnomethodology is a term that we're all going to know and love now on this podcast as the, the old school and the new school, human-centered design. And so what Jack helps us realize is that, you know, with the freedom and resources that he had of working at Park Xerox, he, was, he and his team of workplace studies um, gurus helped to define an approach to ethnography and design that still impacts how we do it today across the industry, across academia, and across the ways that we think about uh, these places in business. And things like how to use video and detailed examinations of interactions to better understand how people work. So it's a super exciting conversation that both details a personal history and how these impacts have like rippled across industry and society. So it's, it's really, really fun. Uh, and so we're super excited to share it with you and hope you enjoy our conversation with Jack Whalen. Jack, meet Adam. Adam, meet Jack. Hey, Jack. Good to meet you. Hi, Adam. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thank, thanks for thanks for thanks for chatting with us today. Um, we were actually just talking about you and and your, a lot. your very cool work. So, <laughs> okay. I, I was trying to give Adam a primer on ethnomethodology and workplace studies. Ah, well, now that's a, that's his topic for for another day. In five minutes or less. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I'm just kind of curious, Jack. I mean, we you know. And when we're recording, we just kind of jump into things here. You know, you're at Santa Barbara, but I always would associate you doing more ethnographic work than conversation analysis work. I mean, I, so many people from, from Santa Barbara are like tight CA analysis, like, 
Like how, how did you evolve out of that? Uh, it's a good question. Um, when I was in grad school, I had two streams of work going on and they weren't uh, related. In other words, and I didn't think they should be. In other words, in my view, ethnomethodology CA is, is, is what it is. And sociology is something else. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> I, I never thought like, oh, you know, what I was doing was more conventionally sociological, although certainly still a minority kind of practice, you know, deep ethnography, life history work. Um, so not, you know, may, may not typical sociology, if you look at like what mo mostly gets get studied and published and so forth. Anyway, I, I never tried or felt they needed to be reconciled, right? So for me, there was no tension, like, am I an ethnomethodologist? Oh, wait, right. am I a sociologist? I mean, if people in who were, soci you know, who, who thought of themselves like as I'm a sociologist and then there's, um, you know, I, I, I could claim, yeah, me too. <laughs> um, uh, and amongst the ethnomethodologists, all I ever said was that my work was ethnomethodologically informed. I, I never really claimed to be, because I, I felt that was risky. Because you know, Gary, especially all of the battles that are still going on, right? You right. know, the Lynch, Bogan, Macbeth crowd and Heritage right. and the Santa Barbara, UCLA Wisconsin right. side of things. I mean, I I did not want to get uh, caught up in those battles. I I wanted to pursue problems and solve them. That's all I cared about. I was just trying to follow certain animals, and depending on what the animal was, the kind of method I use, and this continued just Adam Fruit, especially this continued when I worked in design, right? So I'll I'll get back to that. Um, because even within the world of design, the ethnomethodologist who became some reason extremely valuable <laughs> uh, to, to corporations, you know, going back to the, um, oh, I would say the st starting with the, the mid nineties or so. Um, but we can come back to that. You know, why suddenly was this sort of marginal kind of work and marginal in the sense of numbers and influence in the social sciences, suddenly, you know, Xerox, uh, IBM, right. all these companies were, were hiring all the bloody ethnomethodologists they could find. It was like, really? <laughs> we're so, right. Anyway, so, but so I, I never felt that they, that those two, two lines of work needed to be reconciled, number one. And number two, I never wanted to get involved in those, in those battles. I, I just got interested in certain problems and um, tried to pursue them and used whatever seemed to work, you know, and enabled me to track the animal. Right. I, I, one of the things that come up, that I've come up against quite a bit is when I've talked about workplace studies or earth methodology and people go, that's really interesting. Is there something I can read? And I pause and I think about it. I'm like, um, uh, well, well, you don't want to read that. And, you know, it's like mm -hmm. a lot, so much of it, if for the uninitiated trying to read through it can be rather dense. So I'm curious about your ability, which I think is a unique ability to translate it, to take, you know, because you've had to, because you're working with these people who are professionals, but it's not a quality that everyone shares. This idea of translating Garfinkel, the theory, the approach into these terms that broader audiences can understand and then appreciate. 
Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, um, once you begin working with people, with workers uh, and their managers, corporate executives, you know, you, you have to keep the people who are, who are writing the checks ha happy as well. You know, it's it can be a challenge, always has been in the world of design or, you know, kind of applied studies in, in the private sector anyway. So what once you start doing that, I mean, that no one is interested in like whether you're an ethnomethodologist or is that real? Is that like good ethnography? I mean, they just want to know, you know, what, what can you tell us that will help us with the problems we face? That's all, all they, they fucking care about, as, as right. rightly so. Um, so you, you, if, if you were going to be successful, you, you had to be good at that. So I'll, I'll give you an example. So the first sort of applied work you could say I, uh, I did well it you know the first kind of um what to say you know not just watching the work or observing the work but doing the work came when I when I was a 911 dispatcher in in Eugene Oregon right so you know I I didn't I didn't go to to the Eugene Department of Public Safety it was a combined fire police EMS uh department at the time i didn't go to them with the idea to be honest to be quite frank of doing that i went with them with you know look when in santa barbara and don zimmerman in maryland and i had spent maybe a year and a half periodically going to the santa barbara county sheriff's department um police uh, dispatch center and just right. you know hanging out and observing we, we did at the end we did some video recordings um, as well, like a whole day, I think, with with a few cameras, um, and that you know we we had published some stuff. So I went to Eugene with the idea, um, could I? In other words, uh, you can you can ask them. You know, I, I'm a good guy. <laughs> I'm trustworthy. Right. You know, I'm not some stupid professor who, who who's going to make life you know difficult for you. So <laughs> could I come and observe there? And I remember I met with the. Um, the, the the head of the communications uh, division in the department and the 911 center um, and and this it was this southerner uh, Clay Durbin was his name how he got to Eugene I don't know but anyway and he said look Jack you know if yeah you can come observe us but if you really want to understand what what we do you have to do it I'm like oh okay <laughs> I had a sabbatical coming up. Um, which was like, you know, a whole year, right? Being freed of teaching and committee responsibilities. Um, so I said, yeah, okay. And so, you know, we worked out the terms and he said, I'll help you get the money because we don't have it in our budget, you know, to like hire a social scientist to come, come do work here. But, you know, I think the phone company, uh, US West, you know, they had these baby bells at the time after they broke right. AT&T. Um, that they could be interested because we buy we buy our technology nine one one technology from them, um, as do a number of other centers, and they ought to be interested. Like, what about the users? You know, should we understand what they do and what the problems they have if we're going to design software and hardware for them? And he he was right. You know, I I had great response from the engineers at US West in um, in Colorado. So yeah, they they provided the money to to pay my salary. So I I had a I went through all the and this we what we worked out was I would go through all the training 
Uh, and, you know, I, I could cut it or not cut it. If I couldn't cut it, well, you know, <laughs> too bad uh, for me. Um, so, you know, they, they, they treated me as if I was just any applicant for a dispatcher position, which is the way I wanted it. And I went through the same training. I worked the same shifts. I was subjected to the same, you know, being yelled at <laughs> um, <laughs> or whatever um, everybody else was. And it was hard. I mean, only about less than half of the people make it through probation. So it wasn't easy, but um, it was quite an experience. Uh, 18 months uh, full time working all three shifts and so forth and so on. So, and of course, when, when I, when I was doing that, they kept asking me, what, what have you seen that could help us? <laughs> and initially I was, well, you know, you know I, I need to like understand more. I mean, I'm, I'm just like learning the job, you know, I'm just like one of your novitiate dispatchers. I mean, how, isn't it kind of presumptuous to think I have some great, and yeah, but you're, you know, right. You've done all these studies, you know, of 911 calls and blah, blah, blah. They were right, you know. They wanted to know, like, well, what the fuck <laughs> good are you? Um, right. <laughs> well, to be honest, you know, actually, to, to be fair to them, they were incredibly supportive and kind and generous. Right. And they liked to use me, you know, a professor on the phones. You know, they, they would have me speak to groups and other, other dispatch, you know, dispatchers have their own conferences and meetings and so forth. And they would like, you know, sort of march me out, you know, we've got a professor on the phone and newspaper, mm -hmm. you know, stories and things like that, TV news. And so it was good, which is one of the reasons, you know, they wanted me to do it because they wanted their department to look like they were in, in, in the forefront, you know, they, they were like pioneers and like really looking at what we need to do and how to do it, and et cetera. So I, I understood that. Um, but of course, you know, they wanted, <laughs> and of course when, when I met, like talked to other dispatchers, like if they at one of these conferences or something, they of course would want to know, well, what can you tell us? <laughs> You've been there like a year now, like what the hell um, you must you must have some insights. So, and, and I ended up getting really interested in the way in which they were trying to use technology to improve the capacities, you will, the system's reliability and capacity, including the, the human part of the system in particular. So they were trying to use essentially rudimentary AI to improve dispatch decisions. I mean, are you interested in these details? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's well. So, for one thing, I, I have this idea in my head that that you know, maybe you got this meme when you were there, but that someone calls us, you know, hello, nine one dispatch. You're like, what's your emergency? And they're like, well, you know, my house is on fire. Like the fire fires are happening, and you're like, it sounds like you're dealing with the issues of structural racism and environmental injustice <laughs> messing with your home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, uh, I I, uh, I I was going to be evaluated at my at my skill at doing what, what everybody else had to do. <laughs> Um, it was kind of funny. One, one night, one, one of the callers was one of my colleagues in the department, in the sociology department. Oh, wow. I, I never told wow. him uh, that, that I had been the one to take his call. Uh, and, I, and I didn't tell anyone else in the center, hey, you know, that was a guy I worked. Well, there's privacy concerns, right? I mean, you, yeah. Um, but it was kind of interesting. <laughs> I was like trying to suppress my chuckle. Anyway, so so they wanted yeah. to know, like, to, to, to dispatch help is not just like send anybody who's closest 
and based on what what does that what kind of help is needed? Do you need an ambulance or just a fire engine? Do you need a fire engine and a truck? Do you need a truck with the you know jaws of life, the hearse tools, and blah blah blah? Um, do you need police to go like with lights and sirens, or you know you know kind of put it on your queue, and so forth? So um, there were there were a lot of reasons to to try and improve the decision making and keeping track of what units were where and who was doing what and so forth. So they so what I ended up working a lot with them on was 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 the application of that rudimentary AI um, decision support system um, for dispatch. Mm. Uh, and I did end, end up having quite a bit to say about that and about the interface they used for entering information. I wrote some papers on that, the way in which to talk and the text and assembling a text because the dispatcher only gets a text, right? They're, they're, they're sitting like maybe 10 yards away, but all that pops up on their screen is, is this whatever I've typed, right? I mean, they, they don't hear the call. They can technically... Uh, jump in or listen if they want, but they don't have time for that. They got all these cops and firefighters out in the field talking to them, and they got to pay attention. So for so anyway, that I ended up doing that, and then that led to people at um, at Xerox Park, Lucy Suchman and Giddy Jordan in particular. I gave some talks there. They said um, Giddy was organizing this project with Xerox. Uh, as part of her work with the IRL, the Institute for Research and Learning, which was kind of a spin-off from Xerox Park, dedicated to education in the broadest sense, training, workplace, school education. And Giddy was organizing a project to work with Xerox in their Dallas uh, call center. Uh, and she went to me, do you have anybody who could like work on this? Because we need staff. And I said, well, how about me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know somebody. Me. Yeah, and she said, "Oh, really?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, me in Maryland." So that we ended up moving to Dallas for for about a year and a half, almost two years, to to work with Xerox um, in in their call center because, well, nine one one customer service and kind of related. And so there, that's, Xerox, that's that project was all about what the hell can can you do to help us work better with our customers. And again, AI and the application of more sophisticated decision support and diagnostic tools when customer calls up, what kind of help do they need? Can you tell them something so you don't have to send the technician out to their their site? It was like, you know, $400 for a technician, $40 for a second level expert, $4 for the low paid call center employee to tell them, oh yeah, do this and this and this. Oh, okay. That fixes it. So you can see the company's financial incentive to improve the frontline support. So it all kind of, but this was at a time, as I said, when Xerox in the UK and in Europe, France, uh, UK, Xerox in the States, they were all like, everybody was hiring at the methodologist. I mean, look at all the people either went to work with them, right. Graham Button, my good friend, colleague, right. became director of Xerox's uh, lab in France. Um, by the time uh, his, his career kind of culminated there. Um, but the UK uh, Xerox also was using either people as consultants, you know, um, or as actually making uh, um, the, the, the shift Harper, right. Went, went, went right for them. Richard Harper. Yeah. Richard Harper. So yeah, there, it, it was a time when, 
Okay, but back to your question, what, what to read? I mean, well, Lucy Suchman's book would be a good place to start. There's a, yeah. a more recent edition of it. Um, as, as Lucy has said, you know, the most cited, least understood work in, in computer science. Oh, does she really say that? Yeah, yeah. About playing action? Like, you know, of course, as right. we know, the human factor, you know, Suchman, you know, 1984 right. or whenever it was. But do they really... Because people well, in it's, computer science don't really grasp, you know, what, what the hell she was saying for the most part. Well, it's funny. I was, you know, I, Adam and I were chatting before, you know, you jumped on. I said one of the things that was radical about ethnomethodology at the time was the scientist, the researcher is the least knowledgeable person in the room, is not the person who knows the most, is the person that knows the least mm -hmm. and is trying to understand the ways in which the people of that group of that setting go about producing collaboratively their activities and, and their understanding. And, and, you know, that's a tough thing for engineers to probably accept, right? <laughs> that I know the least. <laughs> I mean, I could see where people would like the, like the idea of Suchman, but then when you say, well, actually, well, this is what it means. Yeah. yeah. They go, Oh, wait a second. I, I, I'm not, I don't know if I'm all about that. I mean, did you find that initially people were like, yeah, that's a great idea. Like even with UX, yes, it's a good idea, but that means you need to change what you do. Well, I don't know. Okay. Well, I'll um, tell you two stories. The, the engineers can be, a, can be, can be a challenge because they have their, they, they themselves have a lot of investment in their own expertise and their way of thinking about problems, what, what the problem is and how to solve it. First story though, it's quite different with the frontline workers. So we, we get hired uh, Marilyn and I go, go to work for IRL. We take leave from University um, of Oregon. We, we, we move to Dallas and, and we show up at the call center uh, and, and they've got this special project. They're going to create the call center of the future, integrating these three separate kinds of customer problems, uh, billing, uh, service on your machine and account, uh, sorry, um, uh, supplies, uh, all of which customers, you know, they had three separate 800 numbers. Let's put them, we'll, we'll create an experiment. We'll, we'll create one center that can be, solve all those problems. Same set of people. Yeah. That's going to be the experiment we're going to create. Like we're going to take right. 30 reps and a few managers and they'll create this little, you know, mo model center that will do that. And, and we're, we're the consultants. So we show up, Marilyn and I, and, um, we, 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 we enlisted a, uh, an ethnographer, not an ethnomethodologist, Catherine Henderson uh, at Texas A&M at the time. We persuaded Catherine, yeah, come work with us. You're in Texas too. So, um, right. so the three of us show up uh, and, and I remember the manager, her name was Cheryl Thomas, huge influence on Marilyn and my, uh, me and a, a wonderful person. And so Cheryl says, first thing she says is, you know, I don't like consultants. <laughs> What yeah, to do. I don't know what to do with you guys. <laughs> so we said, well, okay. She wanted to like give us our assignments, like each day, you know, I'll tell you what to do. And we, we, we really would like to like, kind of like first understand things a little better and then sort of figure out where we think, you know, some interest. Right. So she said, okay, uh, corporate's paying for you. Yeah, okay. But we knew right away we had to demonstrate like what our value was. So we spent uh, a couple days talking to reps, uh, answering calls, sitting with them, listening to the calls, 
Um, and then finally, we did some video recordings. And on one of the recordings, we noticed something interesting. So there were two reps sitting uh, within 10 yards of each other. And one of them has got this problem that the caller has, some information that she needs to get for the caller that she doesn't have at her workstation at the time. And the other rep, who's not like seeming paying any attention, certainly not listening to the call, has overheard enough of it. And just suddenly out of nowhere, he says, oh, oh I got that. And he you know, runs over and gets some piece of paper and brings it back and hands it to her. And she says, oh, thank you. And like, oh, that's that's really interesting. <laughs> and so I, we we took this clip and we, we knew, as I said, we have to demonstrate we have some value. And we showed them this clip. And this is like our big audition <laughs> to, to, to the whole like 30 of them and, and the managers. Um, look, this is what we've seen. And what we think this means is that you have this notion uh, corporate wise that each rep is like a separate silo. Yeah. They're all in right. their own cubicles, but actually they're like one mm, social web and they're hearing each other and they're probably learning from each other a lot. Like you don't even know like what they're talking to each other about and helping each other with teaching each other aside from whatever training, you know, officially they went through. And this is just an example. And you can use this. We said, this is like tremendous leverage. Look at this. Look at how attentive they are to each other. And they, right. I, I'm not exaggerating. They loved it. And we were like Cheryl's, yeah. like, you know, buddies, uh, right arm from, from them then on. She thought like, yeah, you guys have something to say. So that was like, just like showing them, um, what in fact, right. like looking at what people actually did in practice could be, could be value with the engineers. The other story briefly. So we, we, we also uh, in the same center in Dallas, they were trying to use this diagnostic tool, uh, case-based reasoning, which is a, one of the two major approaches in AI. So you have um, uh, two, 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 two basic uh, approach, approaches in case-based reasoning be, being one of them that people on the basis of what they're seeing look for a similar sort of thing, another case in human reasoning. And, and they kind of like, Oh, I've seen something like that before and what it looked like and what we did. So, and, you know, build an artificial intelligence decision support expert system that can help. They were using that kind of technology and they were thinking reps could on the phone based on questions the system would tell them to ask the customer. Right. The customers reported the symptom of their machine, um, give them some help, you know, get, right. reach a diagnosis. And what we showed them was, you know, we recorded many, many, many calls and transcribed them. And we had the video of like what they're typing, what they're saying. Um, we, we did a really deep dive and we said, look, you're treating the rep uh, as just like the end of a transmission bell. So the system says, do this. The customer says this. You type that in. The system then tells you now ask this. You're like not right. thinking the rep is like themselves, like reasoning <laughs> and that the customer themselves was like trying to figure out reason. <laughs> you know, they're both engaged in kind of a practical reasoning. And this is hearable in what they say and seeable in what's typed versus what was said. Um, and in a, in a number of ways. So you, you, you really need to, to have the reps know something at the end of the day about xerography. 
because otherwise they can't they can't really help. They don't know like what the reason the question that they're supposed to ask, why they're supposed to ask that in many cases. If they knew something about xerography and the kinds of problems, number one. Number two, only a certain percentage of the problems can ever be solved on the phone. Everyone knows this. Just focus on those. Forget all, all the rest. There's like a few things that can be fixed. So you don't need to like train them like technicians. There's a few things they can do. And we showed them how they were learning from each other. Because another thing we did was like, look at what reps are really good at it and what ones aren't. And the ones that were really good at it was a small group who had taught each other, including one of them whose brother was a technician who learned a lot from him, who taught a bunch of other people who went to him and said, hey, I hear you fixing things on the phone all the time. Can you help me? And he said, yeah. And he gave them some binders and he sat with them. And, and this was all unofficial, all happening under the radar. So the engineers saw this and said, yeah, but our job is to build an expert system. Uh. <laughs> Don't rain on our parade. <laughs> Right. And I brought you're ruining their fun. I brought the same results to corporate. And I said, you're spending all this money on an expert system. Create like learning centers within this within your service centers and let the reps teach each other, the ones who know it to those who don't. That'll be much more effective. And then the system can we showed how people who knew something about xerography and had learned something about machines could in fact use the system and work around it uh, and get to, you know get through all the stupid questions it was telling you to ask and just go right to what the expert advice was, all that kind of stuff. And, and I, I showed the tapes, I presented the data, you know, I'm, I got good at doing this to the guy in right. charge of the whole system deployment. And he said, look, Jack, I have a problem. I have to deploy like across the U S and Europe, like X thousands of case-based reasoning systems in the next three months. You can't, you know, I, I, that's what I have to do. I, I can't do, I can't do anything with what you're telling me. I was like, <laughs> so I can't copy and paste people. Come on. <laughs> so those are the stories. Uh, right. Yeah. But it's interesting too. So it seems like um, both in terms of, of park and, and doing research for technology and kind of doing design ethnography, I'm, I'm an anthropologist. Um, uh, and so that's, that's like where my entree to this, this framework is. And, uh, it's interesting to think about that so oftentimes that both engineers or, or folks working in corporate, they are approaching it as the technology is the solution. Or oftentimes we as the social scientists may approach it as technology is both the solution and the problem to be solved. <laughs> Humans aren't the thing to be solved away for, right? Um, so I'm curious, about, and it sounds like your, your stories, I'm hearing that vibe where it's, it's a bit about um, we have developed this great case system that we have to use to then deploy help us figure out how to use it better. Whereas your research is saying, actually, yes, that's fine. But really the training of how to use it is actually in between the people. And we need to make sure that is also, uh, you know, as part of the programming is, is, is how do we train each other? And so that's quite interesting too, just to, to have a, a sense of, um, it feels like that that's on one level, like it's the challenge of social scientists working in corporate environments, um, especially in tech environment and not, not in tech environments, I would say, um, is like, how do we help the overlords not want to necessarily solve away, solve us away in essence, right? Like we can use tech to solve everything else, but people are the problem to solve for. Um, I, don't, I don't know if, if that sounds crazy, no, it, but that's, it's, it's an interesting piece. That's yeah. absolutely so. So 
just to elaborate a bit, what, what, what we were also saying was domain expertise, for want of a better term, mm. is, is a huge amount of it on the front lines of any organization. And you are like missing it. Overwhelmingly, right. you are yeah. missing it. You think like just train people to do the limited amount that you think they need to know. Well, actually, they need to know a lot more and they come to learn this a lot. And the people who are good at it are teaching the new guys, the new the new men and women. Like if you really want to know how to do this, it's the, true of, of almost any job from cops and firefighters to and some, some kinds of occupations have learned this. So firefighters, cops, including dispatchers. I mean, I had like a person assigned to me who was an expert veteran dispatcher who sat with me for a couple months until she thought like I knew like what I was doing. They know the importance of this peer-to-peer knowledge sharing and this informal social networks, peer-to-peer networks. You know, we were kind of pressing it, you could say, <laughs> in terms of social media, what now today is like what social media tries to is trying to build is peer-to-peer communication, you know, lateral, not hierarchical. Um, mm. And um, yeah, that 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 in itself is was like one of the big points that we emphasized, which which ha- was really like made the transition to teaching in a design department, like at Alto in Helsinki, um, where I ended up being hired by uh, a sociologist who had studied with Doug Mather. <laughs> uh, oh, really? I didn't know that was a connection. Yeah, yeah, Ilpo Koskinen. Um, okay. And, and Ilpo was a sociologist, and he. Right, I know the name. Yeah, he knew ethnomethodology. And uh, Ilka Arminen, who was another CA yeah. guy, who, who was at um, Tampere, which is uh, in, in a city not too far from Helsinki. And the, But Ilpo was the one who first brought me there and, and ended up um, hiring me. So, but anyway, design is like today, the, the design program I was part of was the um, industrial and collaborative design, right? They come, they're very title. So the idea that you, you know, what's the role of users in design has become like a huge issue in the design world. Are they collaborators, participants, just right. sources? Should they do the design themselves? And you just kind of help, you know, everything along that continuum. And so our, my sort of experience with, yeah, okay. Yeah, we understood this early on that what people know, the users, is like really important and they themselves can help a lot, participate in the design. I mean, there are many stories I, I, I can tell you about what, what really worked um, in Xerox was, you know, user uh, directed, you could say, design with us kind of like offering some advice. So it, it was, a, it was a, a natural sort of easy transition for, for me to. For me to make in terms of my teaching there and working with with graduate students i've often wondered i was just reading some stuff earlier today on human centered design and the first time i came across human centered design my reaction was and yeah. <laughs> i mean it was it, it wasn't any it really wasn't any different than what we were talking about or what you were doing in workplace studies i was going mm-hmm. okay and like what's you branded it this way god bless but it was it didn't strike me as anything new fundamentally in terms of the people who you are studying are the most knowledgeable in terms of how to find solutions for their problems. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So, so Adam, what you were saying, just to go back, I mean, no, it wasn't, it didn't sound crazy at all. I mean, it's spot on. 
Um, the, the work on fisheries was a bit, Gary, you've heard, hear me talk about this. It, that was a bit more of a challenge because on the one hand, you know, I studied them and then they came to me and said, well, you know, you know, we like, you know, talking to you and so forth. Do you want to come work for us? Um, and, you know, the CEO, Jim Cannon, who's a fishery science guy, right, um, including having studied at Cambridge, uh, he, he knows fishery science. Um, right. He was like, you know, every organization should have its own ethnographer. That's what he would he would tell other people in, in the organization and what he would tell other NGOs. Um, and partly with a chuckle, but also with some seriousness. But there I really did have to learn fishery science because I, I couldn't be of any use to them just as like, you know, a, an anthropologist type type person. I, I really, and at, at the end, my last three or four years, I ended up directing, leading a team of people in the field in Indonesia who were working hands-on with fisher, fishermen, fishers, as we, as we call them now. Um, and I, I had to spend a lot of time in Indonesia in these little villages and working directly with fishers. It wasn't that much different. I mean, you know, they were like the youth. I mean, as I've said, if you remember, Gary, uh, designing a sustainable fishery or creating a sustainable fishery is a design problem. And right. it's all about people. It's not about the fish. Yeah, you need to know, like, are the fish dying or are we catching too many or not enough? And the interaction between different tropic level, all kinds of technical stuff yeah it's really important you need the data but at the end of the day it's how you manage people you're not managing the fish <laughs> and so it was it wasn't that hard to to see the sort of field work we were doing as you know related to to this my whole career work working you know hands-on with end users but but what i really had to, to learn was it was it was a, a, lo a lot of fishery science for sure that makes sense. I mean, so one of the one of the ideas that that I think is, is worth playing with. I'm just curious from your experience is that um, I've heard it said before too that you know ethnographers or ethnomethodologists. One of the things that we this the methods or the ways of framing our thinking can be useful for is that we may not be the we aren't the expert when we go there. Obviously, we have to we have to you know the the, the folks that are there are the experts, but the methods of how we do observation and participation can give us sort of a fast track mm -hmm. to picking up the kinds of questions to ask, right? That would get us towards some level of competency, if not expertise, right? And did you find that was the case in, in the fishery example? Like particularly going in Indonesia sounds like it's it's in that direction. Um, it requires knowing the science, but then one of the hopes is that we, and I keep saying, keep saying we, I, I was not there, but you know, the, <laughs> but the idea of, of, you know, ethnographically asking the kinds of questions that get towards how the expertise is framed, how, how they think about fishery problems, how they think about designing the sustainable system, for example. Um, did you find that that was, I mean, it seems to me like, I mean, again, I'm biased, obviously, but like, it seems like that's a, that's a, a way of helping us get towards the expertise that like a design thinker, if they came from, from design wouldn't necessarily do it the same way. No, they wouldn't because they'd had design thinkers in um, that other NGOs had brought um, who were pretty much useless. I mean, they, they ended up designing very interesting looking solutions, but the fishers would look at it and say, <laughs> I don't like what, this is not, this is not going to work. Um, and and new they use post-it notes? Did they have post-it? How many post-it notes did they use with that? <laughs> They had all kinds of ideas. Um, okay. 
which, which weren't, weren't going to work, um, and plainly so. So, yeah, so spot on again, uh, Adam. So, yeah, uh, how can I say? In Indonesia uh, is, is a you know, developing country. It's an ocean country. I mean, it, it, its key resource is, is its marine waters. Um, and uh, there are lots of fishermen <laughs> and f- f- various kinds of seafood products, you know, shrimp at, at the top of the list, um, tuna, crab, um, all, all are very important to, to their survival and, and their development. But most of the fish, fisheries are artisanal or small scale, right? So you have a lot of one person, one boat, or two or three guys in one boat. Um, and the processing is often also relatively local. So, and that's done largely by women, like in the case of crab, you know, cracking the shell open and taking the right. meat out um, as the first step. Right? So, the smaller operations. So, uh, at the end of the day, if you want to sort of like create a sustainable system, you have to recruit or enlist the support of those thousands and thousands of artisanal fishers and processing little operations. Because if they don't, if they don't support it, it will fail. Uh, these right. these countries, these developing countries, they don't have like a coast guard or. They have good laws in many cases. Actually, Indonesia's national government had many good decrees and policies about how fisheries should be managed, but very little enforcement capability because of resource limitations. And um, so if, if anything was going to work, uh, you, you, you had to enlist. How can you get their support? Because you're essentially often asking them, oh, catch less and earn less. Oh, but it's only short term, you know, catch a little bit less, let the stock rebuild, then there'll be lots for everybody. But then you have the problem of, well, then more people will want to come and do it. And then the stock will, how do you control access and, you know, not hurt people? There were all, these are fundamental problems of, of human beings and their survival, their community survival. You can't, you know, just use laws and, 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 and various kinds of policies, uh, uh, that that you think will will lead at the end if they're followed to a properly managed sustainable fishery that'll be around decades for now um, and, and and help Indonesia grow and succeed in terms of its goals, uh, uh, economic and social goals. If you can enlist their support, so as you were, just as you were saying, Adam, you know what these people think about what they're doing, what their view of these policies is how they interpret what the rule is and how, especially the way they get around it, cheat, if you will, um, because they feel they have to, to survive. If you don't get all of this, you'll never succeed. And the Indonesia team, they're all Indonesians. They all, they knew, they knew this. And they were arguing often with people who were more, a little distant, more fishery science types, less field experience in an NGO, but also within the, conservation movement more generally having to argue about this because from a, again, from the scientist point of view, you know, uh, the oceans are going to hell. <laughs> We've got to do something. Yeah. But you know, you can't, you can't just think that, you know, knowing what the solution is, is like, that's a clear path to, to making it work. Um, that might seem like you're compromising or siding with industry. Yeah. Well, these, 
these people in these little villages, I mean, you know, industry, okay, that's the bottom level of the the industry, but it's not like it shouldn't be a sin (laughs) to to work with industry, but you also need the big companies because if the government can't regulate themselves, you're essentially asking the companies taking all the fish and selling it in the States and in Europe. Um, You're essentially asking, you need them to say, we're not going to buy fish and sell it. We're not going to buy it from wherever the source is, and we're not going to then sell it unless we can be shown that it was caught in a sustainable way, or at least is moving Mm. toward that in whatever people are doing. And if they're willing to enforce those rules, that has enforcement impact all the way down through, through the chain. So that was sort of another kind of political battle being fought in the conservation movement over how, how much you work with industry. But again, you know, industry is like a placeholder for everything from some guy with one, one little crab boat uh, in, in a little village in north central Java all the way up to, you know, big retailers like Walmart. Um, so mm. it, it's a complex problem. And understanding the economics as well as the science was that's something all stuff I, I I had to learn. But yes, Adam, just to, to get back to your question. That's great. I'm doing a lot of talking here. Let me let me stop it. You okay. just asked me questions. You're the guest. It makes sense. No, it makes sense. <laughs> and I think the complex problem thing here, I was talking with my students about having to take the need to take a systems perspective, right? You mm-hmm. you can't just, you know, what I would call the experience ecosystem. If you just focus on one particular element, you're going to miss the larger social, you know, um, the larger social system in which these things reside. This is why, you know, I often talk about computer-supported cooperative work versus human-computer interaction. Looking at the functionality and usability of an interface has nothing to do with larger accountability structures that people have to adhere to when they're using the system, right? It's that larger level thing. And when you go to that level, I think people start to freak out because now it starts to feel like, well, now what the hell do we do? And, you know, thanks for complicating my life, jerk. So now we've created this. We, all we wanted to do was make something that looked good. Now you're telling me we got to. And, and so trying to create this appreciation and need to look at this stuff for the good of the project, right? What, what did you do to try to get people to come along when, as you started to describe this complexity, they might have started to freak out. Well, a good in, in terms of like in Xerox, um, we we found Matt, we found managers who were understanding and sympathetic, and and there were several of them. Um, same thing in Japan. You know, I worked for for three years, living half my life, two weeks of every month for like over two and a half years, going back and forth to Japan, working with Fujitsu. We did find right. managers who were sympathetic, who, who wanted, who wanted to, to figure, they, they knew just what, the way you just described it. They understood the complexity. And for them, it was as big a challenge as it was for us. So we, we were all on the same page. Like, this is, <laughs> this is a big fucking problem. How, right. how are we going to fix this Japanese culture in the workplace and the way corporations in Japan think about things? That's like, as much a problem with, you know, how you interact with customers in your face-to-face or um, virtual meetings, you know, you, you can't address one without understanding the other. This is a 
it's a big fucking problem. So h- how do you how do you address that? So f- first was like look for look for people with influence um, in, in the organization. So in Indonesia, it meant people in 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 the fishery ministry. It meant people in the companies that were sourcing from buying the fish from from these artisanal fishers and, and, and processing plants. It meant understanding the organizations of the processing plants right. who, who were very powerful organization in terms of the crab sector uh, and their interests and their particular way of thinking about the world, you know, and, and list help where, where, wherever you can. Um, because I think, um, Gary, that m- most people who, who really work within the, these systems do understand it, its complexity and, and, and know how, how, how much of a challenge the problem is. And, and you just need to sort of find them and, 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 and help them figure out how, how to address it. Yeah, I'm not saying we've always been successful. There have been times when I, I felt we weren't being terribly successful and other times when we were. And I wish I could tell you like there was some magic sauce, but um, it, 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 it's not easy. All these problems are big problems. Well, we're, we're certainly learning all this in the world now with the pandemic. You know, yeah, actually, right. this is really a complex problem. And it comes down to people. <laughs> right. I'll, I'll, going back to your point, right, it, it comes down to people once again, and it comes down to, you know, it's funny, people would ask me questions, like, I you know, work at a business school, they say, well, what, is, what does sociology have to do with business? And I just kind of look at them and go, everything, and just kind of walk away. I mean, you know, it's like, how do you answer a question, you know, the better way is, you know, if business is about people and sociologists study people, then, you know, biz, you know, sociology is, is fundamental to what it is you're trying to do. But at the same time, going back to something we talked about as a discipline and anthropology as well, we've done such a good job at rendering ourselves irrelevant to the conversation <laughs> by primarily only speaking to each other in ways that no one else can understand. Yeah, uh, certainly. <laughs> Uh, in, I mean, ethnomethodology and CA can get extremely technical, as, as I was saying at the beginning, and, and really caught up in these internecine <laughs> battles. It's the same in anthropology, um, these academic quarrels. Um, I, and we, I think all of us understand, you know, the, the history of those and, and why they happen and how they're kind of natural to any field. I mean, physics, biology, astronomy, they have them too. Um you know, careers made and broken over these uh, disputes, um, over method and theory and such like. So, you know, that's that that's the way it is with with humans. Um, but uh, I, I I think um, I think actually, if I could say this, ethnography and ethnomethodology is kind of a version of ethnography, a particular approach to ethnography. I would say. Um, uh, have what to say? It, it, it's a way of thinking about the world, how to study it, how to work with it, how to how to use what you what you see and learn to to improve the world. That that other ways of doing that within the, the human sciences lack. Mm. Um, and yeah. and that's why Xerox was hiring so many people. Why Lucy Suchman's book had the influence that it did, um, why the, you know, the, the, the 
the work she did at Park ended up having all these ripples, you know, throughout the IT corporate world. Um, it's because it it turned out to be quite valuable in a way that more other approaches that have been tried, like people and systems, uh, you know, going back to ergonomics, to, you know, system thinking, cybernetics, you know, all of these psychology um we're, we're, we're lacking that cultural, social um, dimension in terms of their understanding. I mean, I, I, I do have a lot of respect, I want to say this, for, for people who work with more mathematical models. Some of my best friends mm, right. are um, statistical experts. Um, uh, that, that also... Ha- I think it can be really important. Um, I mean, there's a lot I could say about that, but I, I've never felt that that this was some kind of like battle we needed to have with people who worked with numbers and mathematical models versus people that work with stories. Essentially, that's what ethnography, right? Telling the story of the people. That's what the, the whole term, you know, the, the right. name is based on that. Sort of those Greek notions, um, ideas. So... You know, we tell stories, they tell stories too. They use numbers to support their stories and make their case. We use um, descriptions, you could say, accounts, um, uh, scenarios, um, the kinds of things designers talked about, personas, and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's all about, it's like, like novelists, right? You know, you have characters, you have a plot. <laughs> you have personas, you have uh, scenarios. I mean... What, what's the difference? I, I have to get one piece of uh, equipment on. Oh, wait, no, I, I have it here. Sorry. Um, I'm going to run out of juice here on my iPad. Yeah, don't do that. I'm run out of juice. Uh, where's mine? Okay. Sorry. Perfect. That's okay. I was going to ask you, you know, I was going to act, you know, talk about this notion of. One of the things I talked about with my students recently, a student asked a question about, well, if you go out and become a 911 operator, doesn't that interfere with your objectivity? And I said, uh, one of the, the, the way I condensed it down was I said, one of the things that we try to do is get rid of this objective, subjective, mm-hmm. participant observation duality by combining them as a participant observer or observer participant who has the reflexivity to actually study one's own ways of doing that are recognizable to other members of this, of the context as competent. Yeah, exactly. So this is like, you know, going back decades and decades now, you know, this way of thinking about observing, participating, et cetera, within anthropology, certainly amongst ethnographers. um, Yeah. uh, Well, yeah, I, I would get asked the same question as well as, well, if you videotape people, do they behave differently? You've got a camera on them. Don't, don't, doesn't that influence, you know, how they're acting? Well, if you leave it on for 12 hours, you know, after about the first hour, <laughs> they really can't no. much attention to it. They have to do their job and they kind of, you know, forget that it's there actually. Um, so yes. Um, uh, if we believe as, as we were saying that the, workers themselves front let's say you know frontline users or end users or whatever you want to term you want to use know a lot about what they're doing and it's like knowledge that could be um, leveraged and 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 be brought more to the fore 
um, because it's it's really valuable, but not often supported or recognized. Um, if we believe that, then that subjectivity, they're certainly subjective. That subjectivity certainly is a valuable tool uh, rather than like an obstacle to, to, you know, coming up with objective or reliable. Let's just say, forget objective, subjective, just reliable, meaning that you can trust it. It will be useful. It's not fantasy. It's more or less facts. Um, so you, what, what you want is reliable knowledge, not necessarily objective knowledge, for all the reasons I think, Gary, you, you've been teaching your students. That's a great point, actually. I, I really like that, too. Uh, you know, if there is a debate going on between whoever, you know, whether it is in, in between schools of thought and or just trying to make the case of why a certain form of research knowledge or information is useful for, for solving a business problem. Um, reliability is, I mean, you know, the flip side, we talk about what are the actionable insights that come from this, right? Or whatever, whatever terminology we might use, you know, at work. But I think that's actually just a super simple, but also like quite helpful way to be like, is the information reliable? Is it useful? Do you really care if it, if it's like a quantitative or qualitative sample? I mean, it depends on the question, of course, but like, uh, I think that that's, I don't know, there's something about that too. That's just like, there's a bit of a simpleness staring us in the face too, of like, we, <laughs> it's okay to find reliable data, right? That's what we want to have at the end of the day. Well, this is the current debate over vaccines and their efficacy, right? I mean, okay, yeah. it's South Africa. What about this variant? I mean, and you can hear this being, you know, thank God we now have uh, briefings where we actually get to hear them discussing and debating and answering the questions about, about all this. Um, you know, you, you can hear the scientists themselves, uh, the epidemiologists, the public health experts debating. Yeah, okay, you have this new variant, but, you know, to me, like, what's reliable is that all, all the vaccines have resulted in not, none of the people who were vaccinated with any of them have died, as far as we know. Like, right. duh, okay, you know, 60% versus 80 or 90% or whatever. You don't want to get sick at all. Yeah, but not dying seems like a really good, <laughs> a really good thing. So, but, and that's all, you know, you, you couldn't answer that question if you didn't have the numbers. So, I mean, that's like a great example mm -hmm. of how epidemiological statistical modeling is, at, you, <laughs> you couldn't do anything about figuring out what to do without it. You can have all the ethnographers in the world who, who might help you understand people's reluctance to get vaccinated and their anxieties about wearing masks and all the pressures to not wear them. I don't want to look like I'm just, you know, being PC and all these all this crap that's going on. Their ethnography could really be useful, but it's not going to help you figure out what the efficacy against the South African variant of the AstraZeneca <laughs> vaccine is. Not Quite true. That is a fair point. Yeah. So it's it's one of those like we it's not an either or definitely you know one of these kinds of questions, but it, it's that we need to have um, we need to be okay with the mix of these kinds of information and knowledge, and that's a great example with the vaccine there. Like, what, how is um, the information reliable in terms of the question you have? Because the questions yeah. differ, different kind of question, different kind of information needed. How reliable is that information given that you collected it in this way? Because that's the kind of, you need it and so forth. So, mm. when, when, when thinking back to the park days with you all who were, you know, at, at the work, inter, uh, what was it, work interaction technology or that was King's? What was your group called? The work? Yeah, uh, well, Lucy's group was work 
practice analysis, WP. I forget what how she called her group. Um, when Marilyn became the, the head of a social science group, I, I don't know if she had a name for it. I have a coffee mug because I gave a talk there and Eric Finkhausen gave me a coffee mug one. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I have one of those mugs, actually. Right? Yeah. So one of the things about that group, which was really interesting, was even though you had to deliver results, you also got a chance to hang out. Yeah. And, you know, and I think at a certain point, there was a shift there, as in many places, where it became less about hanging out and more about the client wants this and we need to deliver that. And, and to what extent does this hanging out, letting you know, the emergence of the phenomena based upon your observation and engagement versus let's go out and look for a thing that the client says they want us to do? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> you know, Xerox Park, when we were there, had almost 400 researchers. They're down to like less than a third of that now. Um, mm. If you look at, there, there was a period in which monopoly power within particular sectors gave a huge advantage to the, to the monopolists. Xerox within the, um, what to say, copying, you know, how to say, in, office information support, kind of an interface between paper and technology world, IBM. So th th they, had, uh, they had these labs. Um, Intel, uh, until AMD came along, and everyone else, Apple with their own chips. So there was a brief period in the 90s going up into the early 2000s in which these companies had a lot of resources to devote to R&D, and they used them. And they gave what, what I had at Xerox Park, what we had was just like unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. Well, I could because I kind of knew I had visited and new people there, but it was just amazing. You know, oh, you need this tool. You need this device. Oh yeah, here, you know, like, oh my God. You know, I had to, <laughs> I had to fight with the Dean to get a, a VHS machine at Oregon. <laughs> what? You know, I study videos, you know, could I please have a machine? To, um, anyway, so there were tremendous resources and we had a lot of freedom. On the one hand, we were supposed to be useful. On the other hand, Xerox was supposed to be inventing the future, not like designing the next copier. But over time, as those monopolies crumbled uh, and the world changed, Xerox is not an internet company. Oh, really? <laughs> no, it, it can't be a dot-com. It's an old-school company. Um, how can they change? You know, IBM was much more successful at making that transition than Xerox. Xerox nearly went bankrupt, you know? Right. Um, very close uh, to, to, to collapsing, like um, their fellow Rochester, you know, Kodak, which did collapse. Right. Um, they were the two big companies side by side. You know, you could see them, um, their corporate headquarters based in Rochester, um, U.S. headquarters. And one failed and one is kind of, you know, kind of rebuilding itself. Anyway, so there was a period in which that freedom was tremendous. And then it got more and more and more and more constrained until it was, just as you say, exactly. You guys better figure out, like, to solve these problems and become good consultants um, if, if we're going to keep you around. It, you know, frankly, that, that's the way it became. If you look at, like, where people have gone, 
I mean, a lot like Eric, you know, speaking of Eric Binkhausen, he now works for uh, an auto uh, company working on like the smart car, self-driving cars, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and the people, uh, Peggy Shizmansky, everyone went to more narrower niches, you know, to companies with particular applications who just wanted one or two, you know, not like right. a whole team of a dozen. Um, yeah, things have changed. It's the, Those days are gone. Xerox Park, there'll never be another Xerox Park or another another center like uh, uh, IBM Albaden in, in the way it used to be. Yeah, well, Intel. It's all the same. <laughs> We're in a brave new world now, I guess, you know. Uh, it's funny because Xerox Park like sits in 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 the world of workplace studies. It, it's like it's like the the place where it happened. You know, it's like the 1960s utopia. It was the movement that was there. And then now, now we're past it. We're like, man, that was awesome. But <laughs> it was. I mean, look, look what was invented there. You know, the whole, you know, the Xerox star, which became the sort of basis in terms of design for the Mac and how the Mac led to Windows, you know, which essentially is like copying the Mac um, right. onto an Intel chip. And, and anyway, so you, 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 you did have that, that utopian-like <laughs> era. Um, but, but yeah, those, those days are, are over. It doesn't mean that you can't. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, me ending up in a fisheries sustainable fisheries NGO is not like a bad thing or like, isn't that sad what Jack's, you know, ended up doing. <laughs> but Jackson, a boat in Indonesia <laughs> hauling fish. Isn't that sad? Well, no, I don't know if it is. Uh, is that for the beach? for me, nice. every, every different, every change I've made has been for the better to be. And I'm being completely honest, completely honest. I, I never had more fun and worked with better people than I did toward the end at Alto and with the uh, sustainable fisheries partnership. Um, it, it's really true. And it really does defy in many ways. And maybe this is why, you know, your transition out of academia, I've had the same issue. You know, people have said, you know, what's your area of specialization? And I just kind of look at them puzzled. I'm like, I don't know. I just research things that are interesting <laughs> that I want to know more about. I mean, what's a specialization? This idea that you're supposed to spend like, you know, your career narrowly examining some subset of a problem or topic and become an expert among 10 other people who do that same thing versus, you know, going to Japan, going to Indonesia, going to Dallas, people working at NASA, you know, what, whatever it is, working in fisheries. It, I don't know if you ask me to pick, I think I'm going with your route <laughs> than the other one. It sounds more fun. Yeah, yeah, well, I would say it's way more fun. <laughs> like any, any of my co former colleagues at university of Oregon, and I've talked to them, of course, uh, over the years since, um, uh, I, I don't think they've had nearly the, the, the fun that, that I've had. I would, I, I could, I couldn't hardly imagine how they could. Right. I mean, it's, I think it's in going to conferences, academic conferences, when we do, when we used to go, when we do go, it is interesting, right? Because this element of listening to people give talks, and I don't mean to diminish them or dismiss them, maybe a little bit. And at the end of it, there's this impulse of, so what? That's really interesting. But like, what, what problem, going back to your original point, what problem are we solving? I just want to, you know, research things and solve problems. Yeah. The, I mean, the problem for people who are purely academically inclined, um, uh, they, they have their problems as well, but those are problems of a different order. 
within particular disciplines. I mean, if you were real, like ethnomethodology as, as a way of doing human studies, you know, let's right. start with a very small s. Um, uh, let's just say human studies. Um, if, if you really believe that that is like the way, you know, a revolutionary way, which if, if everyone did, it would completely transform the way in which we think about and study humans. For you, that's like the problem to pursue, the battle you want to fight. You're going to die on that hill. Right. <laughs> so And plenty have. They have and they are. <laughs> uh, not, you know, it's not the hill I'm, I'm willing to die on. I, I, I don't want anyone like hearing this podcast who, who has those to, for the, for them, those problems are really big and important problems. I, I don't want it to seem like I'm disparaging them. It's just oh. problems of a different order. I mean, you remember within biology, the revolution of molecular biology. So don't we study like horses and cows and plants and like what, molecules and, 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 you know, who does that below that, you know, uh, is, is that, you know, biology, um, and there were huge battles fought over like what, what the discipline ought to be and the kind of people we ought to hire and the kind of problems. And then, well, actually, you know, the chemical sort of makeup and, and processes within organisms, whether organic, whether human or plant, um, uh, are, are inseparable from the, you know, the actual physical, what to say, organs uh, and, and, and structures. And so we, we really need to like, you know, do both. Well, wait a minute, you have biology and chemistry. And so for, 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 for every, you know, way of understanding the world, people at the end of the day come up against the limitations of particular ways of thinking about problems and what's needed to solve them and, 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 and really are successful when, when they're able to, 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 to combine them. So, um, yeah, we, what? we, we, well, for, I, I, it's a simple question, but, you know, I've always wanted to not just understand the world, but change the world or a simple way. It sounds right. like a simplistic, naive almost way of talking, but really at, at the end of the day, that that's what motivated me. But for some people, understanding the world it is in of itself a, a pure enterprise worthy of, of devoting your life to. And okay, yeah, I, I can really respect that. And I did always see that, you know, with the, I think one of the things about ethnomethodology was always interesting. I don't think it gets enough credit outside of, well, definitely in sociology it doesn't, but even outside of it is there was always an easy coexistence, I would say, between people who were doing the applied work, people who were doing academic work, and then people who were doing both. And that's, it, you know, you had people who were academics who were work like one of our friends, Tim Halkowski, mm. was at the, it was in a medical school. <laughs> teaching doctors, right? So he's an academic teaching doctors. And you can go on down the list of people who were as working as academics and doing the work of small C consulting, right? <clears throat> and, and so there was a very fluid nature, whereas in most academic environments, you can't do both. And there, there were, I think, in many ways that the methodology, especially places where you had a mass of them, were able to fluctuates, Rod Watson, being able to go back and forth between different things and not necessarily losing any, not losing either, right? You didn't have to commit to one or the other. You could do both. Yeah, I think that's 
There are other examples too. West Sharrick, for sure. You know, Sharrick, one of right. my heroes, you could say, uh, in, in, in ethnomethodology. Graham, you know, being very close friends with West, they continued to work together and address, you know, technical problems, you could say, or very within ethnomethodology, CA kinds of issues, even as Graham was like leading <laughs> Xerox's Grenoble lab. Uh, so, yeah, you. It can be hard. Some departments are more supportive than others. What I really like most about, you could say, working at Alto in a design school was the way in which for them, well, that you you had to be, design is like, you know, figuring out the way in which the world could be formed. Um, right. uh, it, it, it is, you, you have to understand something about how it works uh, in, in order to to figure out what to do. Uh, so there was never, there was never a distinction with, within Alto, of course, over like applied versus, versus pure. Well, we, we were supposed to be writing papers, um, which we did, um, which were addressed to the design world. Um, but at the same time, everyone in the faculty was involved in very practical projects with the city, so cool. corporations. Yeah. Et cetera. Everyone, absolutely everyone. And the students, There's a utopia, Adam. Students, There's my utopia. There it is. The, the students were absolutely great. They they were the best students I've ever had. Were were, were uh, at Alta. And I mean, also, there's just something too about. It seems the Scandinavian participatory design world that um, that the U.S. would do well to to pay more attention to in terms of like how do we not feel so icky about. Um, actually, when you said before about like, you know, knowledge pursuit as its own enterprise, like it's funny because then I'm like, oh, the impure enterprise is the one that we all work for <laughs> elsewise, right? That's not, <laughs> um, but how we have to break that, we have to break that idea out, right? And so it's, it, that's what I wonder too, and just, and I don't know, I don't, I don't um, live in Europe, but um, just the Scandinavian participatory design models seem somewhat more comfortable with. And so I, I, to me, that's somewhere that I look towards to kind of get a sense of, um, how do we become more comfortable mixing academic and in practice-based models of of knowledge building, right? And and Park is a good example of this too, right? Because you're publishing as well as then designing new products and services, um, and I think that's important. So it's like um, maybe that's why I'm seeing it as a utopia because it does seem like it's it's trying to bridge these two worlds that don't have to be divided, but they often are, right? And yeah. here's a hope. Maybe maybe a fishing boat is the answer. Actually, <laughs> if we go fishing more, we can figure it out. <laughs> no, it's. It's been so long since I've worked in a U.S. university. I mean, you know, how, how many years now? Let's see, 94, 6, 7, almost 25, 30 years. So I I, I don't have any contemporary experience, but I, I have talked. I, I did also, I interviewed once for, for a job at a, at a U.S. university as, um, as department head. Um, uh, and when I was... Like I think just beginning to work with SFP, I was still trying to figure out, you know, what exactly I wanted to do, and did I want to work full time one place, or do I like being in Finland and in this and so forth? But what my my what I said was, you want to hire me? You're a mid size. I won't say where where are they who they are, but they're they're not going to ever be a Santa Barbara or a Madison or a UCLA or 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 you know one of the major research centers. They're, they're not that kind of university, um, and certainly not in sociology. 
Um, so why aspire to that is what I said. If you, you, you want to hire me to be your department head, you've got these other schools on campus. You have an engineering school. You have a business school. Let's like make your search department the applied sociology department in the country, if not the best, one of the best, you know. You could be unique in that regard. That's the way to make your mark. Because they were saying, right. we want to really like advance our program in sociology. What will it take? Well, you'll never. <laughs> but they didn't hire me. A miracle. They, they did not hire me. Some people liked it, you know. I could see and some people in the department. No, 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 no. We don't want this guy. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, yeah, I understood. But, you know, I wasn't going to go there just to be expected. Yes, and that's that's actually the right choice. I mean, that's that's the other part too. Is like we have to realize that we, as researchers, are empowered to make decisions that we think are both good for us, but then also, um, if they don't want to be applied, don't go there, right? If the, if that matters to you, I, um, I think that's yeah, super. Important. I was also a candidate for a deanship somewhere. Oh dear. Well, yeah. and yeah, in, in every case, it ran up against you know my commitment to you know bridging this gap between the what to say corporate, private sector, and the public sector, and the academy you know to me and that that was like you know where where universities could really be successful and it, it didn't mean just taking research grants and, and writing patents it meant you know solving problems in, in the world but you know I, I i wasn't as you can see i wasn't successful <laughs> and, i'd say you were I, successful because you didn't get <laughs> You get stuck in that mess because, yeah, having some recent experience and 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 I work at a good place in that way, um, but yeah, it's 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 too bad. But I think that you know there are alternative models being provided. I don't mean educational. I just mean providing opportunities for those who want to bridge that gap to have voice to do so. So publishing, out, you don't need to publish in a journal. You can publish on a blog. You can do, you know, you can put your material out wherever you want to put it. You can make videos and put them online. So as academics start to embrace, that might not get you tenure per se, but I would even expect that to start to change. Yes. Because showing relevance to the world is what schools are going to be evaluated against. Well, being in a business program, right, you can, I mean, you have much more support, um, recognition, I would expect. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's, no, that's why you're there, I expect. That, no, I, I'm there, Jack, because they were the only place to offer me a job. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, I just got lucky. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. You know, and I did my research on the liquor stores in Detroit and looking at the interactions in the liquor stores. And they're like, oh, you know about business stuff. Uh, yes, I do. Great. Come on in. And so it was helpful, but it wasn't the plan. But, you know, luckily, the plan you know, this ended up working out better than the plan would have, which goes back to Lucy's point. You can have the whole, all the plans in the world, but then it's about how things actually happen and what you do <laughs> versus the plan. Yeah. 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 I think probably for, well, I would say the same for me, you know, these weren't things I planned. I never, I never planned <laughs> to end up at, at Xerox. I never planned to spend three or four years half of my time in Japan or working with Japan full-time for that matter. I, I never planned to be in Finland. I never, I never planned to be working with Indonesians or fishery scientists. And all, all of that kind of happened because just as in your case, there were people who like valued what I could bring and, 
and saw it and reached out to me, you know, it's kind of interesting. And in each of these cases, it was people coming to me rather right. than, than, than me going to them and trying to make a pitch or something. That's, that, that's not what I, what, what I did or, or tried to do. That too, I think, gives us a nice goal, though. In that, if they're coming to you, that means you're doing something right, also. So, I think that that's that's the there's the the lesson of the thing: <laughs> do good work. People will come to you to give you more work. Well, I think that's, and, and make a podcast. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, I, I I do. Uh, yeah, I think so too. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not saying it facetiously. Um, I, I think it, it actually is, it is it is the case, and so it's just like I think that, but that there's value in that too. Just like recognizing when you do work that you feel is of value, and that people like that that and people see it that way, then more work comes. And so it is, it begets work. And then you end up on a fishing boat or in Japan or in, in Helsinki. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think. <laughs> so be warned, be warned. Listeners. I think Tim would say, he, I, I, I've never actually asked him this question, but I am sure Tim would say, I'm really happier here than I ever would have been like in a traditional sociology department. Um, uh, just, you know, doing C, CA studies and trying to convince my colleagues that CA really was like kind of Right. Um, and so forth. Uh, some people have like moved back and forth, just as you say, but for, for a lot of us, it was, you know, we, we found opportunities and, and supportive environments and, and we've been quite happy and lucky. I think a lot of it also, to be honest, is luck, you know. I've just been lucky. It's, it's better to be lucky than good sometimes. It is, I, I'm a firm believer in that. Better to be lucky than good. Well, I think it's a good place to stop. So, thanks so much, Jack. It's 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 re- real fun to to catch up with you and hear those stories. Yeah, it has been. Once again, we want to thank Jack Rayland for chatting with us about ethnography, sociology, and design. There is a ton to learn from his work, and the influence of his career is going to continue to shape future ethnographers' work for a long time. Now, if you want to find more about Jack's work and his research, check out our show notes for more details. And make sure you let us know what you thought about today's episode, about Jack's work, about how to spell out the methodology. I can help you with that. <laughs> after after a sure. long time of doing it, I know how to finally spell it. That's half the battle. And so feel free to communicate with us at feedback at experiencexdesign. That's experiencexdesign.com. We always love hearing from you. And thanks for your suggestions for new shows and your feedback on past shows. We really appreciate it. And make sure that if even you're thinking about being a guest in the show, reach out to us, let us know what you're working on, and let's have a conversation about it. As always, if you want to subscribe and join the EXD community, you can do so at our website where you can just enter your email and we'll let we'll make sure to let you know about the new events happening in the EXD community and world. And you can stay on top of all of the EXD news. And finally, make sure you go over to LinkedIn, find Experience by Design podcast, and keep part of the discussions that people are having about the episodes. So with that, thanks everybody for listening and we will see you next time on Experience by Design.